Amen. Please take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 3. We are beginning to look tonight in verses 21 through 26, which we can see even in the text clearly begins a new thought in the Apostle Paul's mind, having established our guilt before God, every single one of us here tonight and everyone who has ever lived, save one, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. As you turn there, let me remind you again, as we so often do, uh, of how God works for our good in the life of our church. It's always amazing to me, to both of us as pastors, how the Lord works week after week as we preach through his word, book by book, chapter by chapter, and how he, in his sovereign pleasure, works often to align the texts from which we are preaching in such a way that he impresses his truth upon our hearts and minds, truths that he wants us to grasp and understand, to learn and to remember. And we will see as we study Romans 3 tonight in these verses that the heart of what Paul says here is really the substance of what Pastor Fisher preached on this morning as he preached from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. In fact, the very same exact word is used, different tense, but it's the same root word. Uh, the word is manifested. If you look here in verse 21, you see it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been revealed. It has been made known. And what did Pastor Fisher remind us this morning of the central thought and idea of Paul's letter to Timothy, his uh, son in the faith, uh, he spoke on those verses, or that verse, really, chapter 3, verse 16. Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Paul is telling Timothy what Pastor Fisher reminded us this morning, what is the very heartbeat of the gospel, perhaps an early Christian creed or a confession or hymn. And Paul in Romans is getting at the very same, the exact heart of that same gospel. What a glorious God we serve and how gracious he is to bring these truths before our hearts and minds on the same day, morning and evening, because it is important for us to understand this. In fact, I'm going to say it is a matter, of course, as we so often say about other things, it is a matter of life and of death. That's how important it is to us. Now, we remember how central Romans 1, 16 and 17 was to the great reformer, Martin Luther. We talked about that in the introduction of the study of Romans. We come this evening to a text that Luther himself wrote and called the chief point of the whole Bible. And another commentator referred to as the single most important paragraph that has ever been written. Now that may seem like hyperbole to us, a little bit overstatement, but I tend to agree that what Paul is about to deal with and address in Romans 3, 21 through 26, which is really an introduction to everything that will follow in the rest of chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, is indeed the most important thing that you and I need to know, the most important thing. So, 
As we prepare to study it, let's stand as we always do in honor of the reading of God's word as we come to the preaching of it, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through verse 26. Give your attention, please, to this God's word. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass, all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray now that you would give us ears to hear, a conscience that is sensitive to the leading and the teaching of your spirit, a heart that receives the truth of your word with joy, and that you would do all of this for your own glory and for the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I want you to listen very carefully to me uh, this evening and certainly now as I begin, very carefully. You and I are in trouble. Don't you hate those words? But we are. We have a huge problem, a huge problem. This is what we've learned so far in our study of Romans. There is a great time of judgment that is coming. And that fact is the most important thing that you and I can possibly know in this life. It is where all of life is heading. The end of this life is the judgment that we will experience before the throne of a holy God. And in our nature, as those who are children of Adam, we are not ready to stand before a just and holy God. We simply are not a part from God himself apart from Christ. And this judgment of which I speak and of which the Bible speaks is something that the Lord has simply and clearly stated. It is not a matter of whether you believe it is true or not. Man's opinion, our opinion, of whether God will one day judge the world does not establish the fact that he will and it does not negate the fact that he will. Remember the way that Paul dealt with this issue in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. As Paul was dealing with the righteousness and the justice of God in judgment. As he did that, you remember in the earlier part of chapter 3 in those verses, he says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? 
that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way, by no means. But then how could God judge the world? How could God judge the world? You notice Paul here, and we made the point as we studied these, this, these verses, that judgment is not something that Paul takes any time at all to argue or to defend. He, he doesn't go on to say, oh, let me remind you that God has in these places told us that he's going to judge the world. And this is how we know it. He doesn't do anything. He says that it is so known, so clear to all of mankind, it is just something that is declared to be true. It will happen. We will stand before the judgment of God. We will stand before his presence. This is how the Bible speaks of it. Judgment is coming. God said so, and this is all that matters because God has said it. The question is whether you and I are ready to stand before him on that great day. And hence our problem. We have a huge problem. We are in trouble because if we stand in ourselves, we are unable to stand before him. It is as John Newton said in his great hymn, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. At his call, the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken by his looks prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? It is a fact that God will judge the world. It is a fact that you and I will stand before his presence. You must know that tonight. And in fact, this is so important that you will never know or never understand the glory of what is to come in these successive chapters unless you know that problem and that great trouble that you and I are both in. And so let me say this as we begin tonight, as we examine this passage very briefly, we're going to return to the theme of justification over the coming weeks because it's so central to Paul in these chapters that we need to understand that Paul is really giving us a summary of what he's going to talk about. He will unpack these truths in the chapters that follow. This, again, is just an introduction, a summary that he writes in these verses, but so important to answer that great problem, that great trouble that we find ourselves in, according to the Apostle Paul, as he has proven and shown us in the previous chapters. And so let's look at that as an introduction, as a way to understand where Paul will be taking us. And three headings, as we normally do, I think that are helpful as we look at these verses. The first in verses 21 and 22, let's look at the revelation of God's righteousness, the revelation of God's righteousness. This is the word manifested that's here in our text. This is the word that says God has shown forth. He has declared, revealed, uncovered a mystery once hidden, now revealed clearly in Jesus Christ. It is referring to a time period. That's really what the words but now mean. It's not Paul following the logic of his argument and simply saying, based on everything I said, but now, I mean, that's certainly true. But what really is at stake here is Paul is saying that there is something that now in this age that has taken place, that God has done something new in this period of time, that God himself has done it. But now, he says, 
It is something God has done. Galatians 4, Paul writes to the Galatian believers, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his, forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that, they, that we might receive adoption as sons. It's this fullness of time that Paul is writing about here when he says, but now in this time, in the fullness, the perfect time from God's perspective, that he has manifested something. This is a reference to an historical event. Now, the event clearly in the context of the whole section is everything related to what Jesus has come to do, everything. That's the event that Paul is talking about. That's what has been manifested in a person and in his work on our behalf. It's been manifested, he says, apart from, separate from, the law. What he means by that and what this phrase means, it is apart from the doing or the working of the law. It's everything that he said prior to this. It's not by the works of the law that a man will be justified in his sight, the verses immediate preceding this one. And so it's apart from the law, apart from our working of the law. And yet, he says, and notice, notice what he says, if it, though it is apart from the law, it is something of which the law and the prophets have given witness to. The Old Testament is summarized in this way by the Apostle Paul. The whole Old Testament in his mind is the law and the prophets. And what he's saying is, though the justification, the work of God, the grace of God now manifested in Christ is something that is done apart from our working of the law. The Old Testament, the whole of it, spoke about it, testified to it, bore witness to it. And yes, we know that indeed, don't we? We saw that in the opening chapter as Paul writes about this gospel that is being set forth that was spoken about in the law and the prophets. In John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, Jesus speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees says, The Father sent me. He has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who has, whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, the whole Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life." He says the very same thing on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 when he speaks to the two disciples as they are despondent over all that had happened in Jerusalem that day. And at the end of that, as he gathers with his disciples in the upper room, he says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are the witnesses of these things. So it's apart from our working and our doing the works of the law 
this righteousness that's manifested by God. It's apart from that, but the scriptures themselves bear witness to it. And it is a righteousness, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here Paul speaks of what our confession spoke of. The alone instrument of our justification is faith. And this is a gift of God to us. It is by faith that we receive this righteousness. It is for all who believe and all who trust in him. This is what Paul is saying in these verses. And he doesn't, you see he doesn't only speak here this way, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, but he says it well in verse 25, to be received by faith. And then in verse 26, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, faith will be central to Paul's argument here. In fact, the very next chapter, chapter 4, will speak about the faith of Abraham and how central that was for him, that Abraham was himself justified by faith, by believing the promises of God. This is the revelation or the manifestation of God's righteousness and how it took place in the fullness of time, now in this age, in the coming of Jesus. And this righteousness, Paul says, is for all who believe. Secondly, in verses 22 through 25, we see the blessings of this righteousness. Paul goes on to speak in this way, for there is no distinction. He's already said that. No favoritism with God, no special privileges, but God treats everyone the same. He is not a God who shows favoritism. There is no distinction. Jew and Gentile, all have sinned, he says and fall short of the glory of God. This is one of the great verses we memorize as young believers as we seek to hide God's word in our heart. And in it we find that all mankind who have ever lived, Jew and Gentile, how Paul describes the world, are guilty before God and fall short of his glory. It matters not. This is the condemnation and the verdict of all mankind whether Jew or Gentile. And then he talks about what I see here and most commentators see as three distinct blessings of God's righteousness. What is it that we receive? What are the benefits of this manifestation of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ? There are three things here, and you see them clearly beginning in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Justification is a reference to a legal term, a term used in the courtroom, a term that describes the proclamation or declaration of a judge with respect to a defendant standing before him. He pronounces the verdict. And in this case, Paul says that we are saved, that we receive this righteousness, and it is a benefit to us because by it we are justified, made right with God, declared to be not guilty by God on the basis of the work of his grace, which is a gift to us. Now that's redundant because usually the word gift means the grace of God, and what it says here is that this is all of God's grace, that God alone justifies or makes right before his presence 
the sinner who stands before him in Jesus Christ. And so the first benefit or blessing that Paul says we receive as a part of this righteousness, which is ours by faith, is this legal declaration that we are no longer guilty before him. We are now made right or just before his presence. The second term follows through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption, the word redemption is a term from the marketplace. It means to purchase back through the payment of a price. It is the language of Paul when he says to the Corinthians, you are bought with a price, you are not your own. And that price, according to Peter, is not gold or silver, but the precious blood of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. A price that is paid, offered by God himself, received by God himself, that he is satisfied with that offering of the blood of his son to pay the price that we could never pay. That is the redemption, the purchase, and the buying back of a sinner under the dominion and rule of sin. That redemption is the picture of Christ paying the price of his blood and buying us back. That is the second of the blessings of God's righteousness that we receive in Jesus Christ. And the third is like it, but different. In verse 25, whom God, that is Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is one of the best biblical words that you could ever uh, memorize and use and understand. Propitiation is a wonderful word. It means to satisfy uh, one who is full of wrath. To propitiate someone is to turn away that wrath by satisfying it. And that's what Paul says is one of the great blessings of this manifestation of the righteousness of God. That God himself put forward himself his own son, as the one who would satisfy his wrath against the sinners for whom the son would die. And so what Christ was doing on the cross was offering the sacrifice of his own body that we celebrate here at this table and the shedding of his own blood as a way to satisfy and to turn away the wrath of his father against those for whom he came to die. He does that through this work of propitiation by his blood. And notice again, it is received, these benefits, they are received by faith. They become ours truly by faith. We truly are justified in Christ as we receive it by faith. We truly are redeemed and purchased and bought back by faith as we believe in Jesus and we truly are now free from the wrath of God because Christ, by his bloodshed, satisfied his Father's wrath against us. These, Paul say, are the benefits or the blessings of the righteousness that God has now manifested in Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to build on this, so... We're going through this quickly tonight, but we're going to build on it in the weeks to come. The third point in verses 25 and 26 
is what most commentators rightly call the vindication of God's righteousness. Now, this is interesting, and follow along with me, if you will. Here, Paul changes, really, the, the use of the word righteousness in these verses. Uh, I, let me read them and then explain what I mean by that. This was to show, that is, what God had done in Christ in redeeming us, in justifying us, and in propitiating or satisfying the wrath of God. This was all done to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's a lot, but if you read it, and you read the term here used twice, righteousness, and you think of the righteousness manifested now in the fullness of time, it makes this a little confusing. He's switched his use. What he's dealing with now is God's character. Is his justice, is what God has done in Christ, righteous? Is it just? Earlier in the book of Romans, he dealt with this back in chapter 2 and chapter 3, because Gentiles and Jews alike were asking questions regarding whether or not God was righteous in his judgment of the Jew and the Gentile in their respective states. Remember the arguments we looked at. Go back and look at them uh, on your own, and you'll see and be reminded that what Paul is dealing with there is not the righteousness that we receive in Christ by faith, but rather the character of God, whether his judgments are right and just. What does this have to do with? Well, here's what it has to do with. Most agree. How did God deal with and address those who lived prior to the fullness of time? How did he deal with Adam and Noah, Moses and Abraham, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophets that we know were trusting in God? How did he deal with them prior to this but now and in this fullness of time before Christ came? It's a very common question that so many people ask. Sometimes it's put this way, Pastor, how were the saints of the Old Testament saved when Christ had not yet come? How were they saved? And that's the question Paul is dealing with. Because after all, if Paul says to them, well, they were saved by their obedience to the works of the law. God gave them the law. If they obeyed, they were saved. That would be what? Unjust. Because why wouldn't he do it for us as well? If we could obey the law, why wouldn't he do the same for us? That's an unjust action on God's part. And so what he says is, no, all that God has done in what he has done in Christ is to be understood and seen this way, that he was fully and completely righteous to do what he did because all along in his mind, if you will, 
everything before and after Christ was going to be centered on that but now moment when Jesus would suffer and die and fulfill all that Paul just spoke about on the cross. And it was true for those who preceded him, and it's true for those who come after him. There is one way of salvation. And so God, Paul says, was showing his righteousness by his forbearance to pass over former sins. Now, Passover doesn't mean excuse them. It doesn't mean to turn a blind eye to them. It doesn't mean to forget about them. It means that as those sins were committed and those who believed in the promises of God foreshadowed that pointed to Christ in types and shadows in the Old Testament, as they looked by faith to the one to come, God was pleased to overlook, to lay aside his wrath, to forbear those sins because he knew, he planned, he purposed that in the fullness of time, one would come to pay the price. And so the saints of old looked forward to the promise of God. And we who look back to what God has done and revealed and manifested in this fullness of time are saved in the exact same way. We are saved in Christ. So that God cannot be accused of being unrighteous or unjust. And only we could say, as Paul does, that because he was pleased to forbear and to pass over those former sins, seeing them as being paid fully by the blood of Christ on the cross for the saints of old, even as we look back and our sins are paid in the same way, he might be just, righteous. That's what's being vindicated here. And the justifier, what? Of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you have any doubt that Moses, Abraham, David, all the saints of old had faith in Jesus? Remember Jesus' words? Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it. His whole argument in chapter 4 is going to center on Abraham. What was Abraham looking for? Was he looking for some uh, way to earn favor with God apart from what God would do in Christ? Absolutely not. Abraham would believe the promises of God and by faith look forward to what Christ would do so that God's righteousness would be vindicated. There are not two separate ways of salvation. There never have been. There's only one way. The way that now is manifested in the fullness of time but by promises and types and shadows was set before the people in the way God was pleased to do it, that they might believe his promises from Adam all the way through the Old Testament until the coming of Christ, that those who were faithful, who believed his promises, were no less looking to Christ and him alone than you and I are as we look back as to what God had done. So you see what Paul is saying in all of this. You see it very clearly, I hope. You see why commentators call it the most important paragraph ever written, because it introduces something here that he's going to expand upon. He's going to fill out, to flesh out in the coming weeks. But it is central 
to understanding our great need and God's solution to that need. So what I want to do as we close and prepare to come to the Lord's table, where we see displayed in this form of bread and wine, the very thing of which Paul writes here, our justification, our redemption, our propitiation, God being satisfied by the blood of Christ, all represented here in this table, in this picture, this story of God's grace for us, this manifestation of his righteousness in Christ. I want to begin where we, or want to end where we began. We are all in serious trouble We all have a huge problem. Of course, as we have seen, as I've noted, we're speaking about the coming judgment. And everyone who has ever lived will stand in the presence of an infinitely holy God. Well, what Paul has taught us in these verses is that our problem is something that God himself sovereignly, graciously has addressed. It is something he has done and manifested in the fullness of time, now in this present age. For as we have seen, Paul, in the introduction, speaks of this gospel of God, promised by him beforehand in the prophets and in the Holy Scriptures, what he says in these very verses. It was the good news concerning his son, Jesus Christ, who he said was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit when he was raised from the dead. This is the gospel that Paul says he is not ashamed of, because it is the power of God unto salvation, and it is the righteousness of God that is being revealed. It is this gospel that has been and continues to be revealed now in history, in this time, as the gospel is proclaimed and goes forth. And it is the only remedy, the only answer, if we are to stand and meet our great God and the need that we have. If we're ever going to solve this problem, it must be through what God has done himself to solve it, which is the manifestation of his righteousness in Christ Jesus and received by faith alone. For we are, as we noted last week, We are by nature under sin, under its power, we're under its rule, we're under its guilt and curse. We are by nature slaves to sin and in bondage. And so, Paul says, in the gospel and in Christ, we have redemption. We've been bought, we've been set free, bought with a price. We are now free from the bondage and the power and the guilt and shame of sin. For we are all by nature under the law, and by it we come to know our sin and the wrath that we deserve. Paul will later say the wages of all of our sin is death. And so in the gospel, Paul says, and in Christ now manifested his righteousness, we have propitiation where the wrath of God against us was satisfied through the shedding of his blood, The Father's wrath was turned away from us and poured out upon his one and only Son. He was pleased, Isaiah said, pleased to crush him for our iniquities so that his wrath might be fully satisfied. 
and we are by nature under the verdict of guilty before the judge of all. His pronouncement in our natural condition as children of Adam is that we are like Adam, guilty before him. God declares us guilty before him justly and righteously because of our sins. And so, Paul says, in the gospel and in Christ and in the manifestation of the righteousness of God in him received by faith, we now hear a new verdict, don't we? Not guilty. Not guilty because we have been in Christ justified and declared in him not guilty. All of our sins, past, present, future, washed away, but even more so, It is not simply that we have an absence of sin. We now bear in ourselves and are clothed with the positive righteousness of Christ now revealed in the gospel. And all of this, this glorious gospel, all of its benefits belong to all and everyone without distinction who has faith in Jesus Christ, all who believe in him. That is what Paul is seeking to tell us. That is what he has told us in these verses. And that is what, if you were listening carefully, and you know I like to do this, and so I'll end by doing it. That is what every hymn that we sang tonight said. If you were listening carefully, they spoke of these great truths because the great hymns of our faith The great hymns of our faith center on this very truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man's work faileth, Christ availeth. He is all our righteousness. He, our Savior, has forever set us free from dire distress. Through his merit, we inherit light and peace and happiness. When I stand before the throne dressed in beauty, not my own, When I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Chosen not for good in me, wakened from the wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son. Give me endless hope and peace. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Let us love the Lord who bought us, pitied us when enemies, called us by his grace and taught us, gave us ears and gave us eyes. He has washed us with his blood. He presents our souls to God. Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. We began with a huge problem, and all of us have it. We end with the great solution, the only solution that God himself has provided, 
now, today, right now, here in this place, in this very hour, the righteousness of God in Christ has been manifested to you. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all, without distinction, for all who would believe. And so I simply ask you, do you believe? Have you believed? And are you resting in this one who is our righteousness? Let us pray. Our Father, this truly is the greatest answer that the world must hear because it exists in the greatest problem, the greatest trouble every human being will ever face. Our greatest problem is that we will stand before your throne. We will stand before your judgment seat and we will be judged. The great question for all of us tonight is, will we be judged apart from or in Christ? May it be that all who are within the sound of my voice and in the sound of this place would truly know the righteousness which has been manifested in the fullness of time in Jesus Christ. And may, knowing that righteousness, they have peace with God. And we pray that you would grant this for each one, even now as we come to this table, that we might rejoice in all that is ours in him. For we pray and ask it all with great thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.